Prohibition was an attempt to dry out the entire United States of America via federal action. The immediate legislative and constitutional side to it all was an amendment to the Constitution of the United States prohibiting everywhere the sale and consumption of all alcoholic beverages, beer, wine, spirits. The United States was the only country in the world, outside perhaps of the world of Islam, which actually for a significant period of time, 13 years, attempted on a nationwide scale to dry up the uh, drink trade and the, uh, you know, and uh, as such, try to utterly transform the a basic social habit of millions and millions and millions of people. I love my country, indeed I do, but oh, that war has made me blue. I like fighting, that's my name, but fighting is the least about the fighting game. When Mr. Hoover said to cut my dinner down, I never even hesitate, I never frown. I cut my sugar, I cut my coal, but now they dug deep in my soul. I've got the blue, I've got the blue, I've got the alcoholic blue. No more beer, my heart to cheer. Goodbye, whiskey, you used to make me pretty. So long, highball, so long, Jim. Oh, tell me when you're coming back Like a lot of modern societies, America definitely had a drink problem. This drink problem, oddly enough, had been declining 100 years before Prohibition. The average white American drank seven and a half gallons of raw alcohol a year once it's mixed up with other drinks. After about 40 years of strong propaganda, from 1850 onward, the average American drank about adult American two gallons of alcohol a year and this stabilized at about two and a half gallons of alcohol after the Civil War. There was a big change however in that alcohol from being brewed and distilled on farms and drunk locally as a social event had now become commercialized as a great business largely by the great German-American brewers in Milwaukee and the brewers to increase their sale had uh, generated a saloon business they wanted high turnover, high profits, but to, to, for high turnover they wanted high sales, um, which meant cheap beer. Originally, it was hoped that Americans would be persuaded to just stop drinking, as they'd earlier been persuaded to cut their drink, just as Father Matthew had in Ireland. When this didn't work, the so-called Prohibition Party emerged to try and secure legal uh, restriction on drinking in the States, and when this didn't work, Middle-class organizations, such as the Women's Christian Temperance uh, Movement, founded in Ohio in 1873, and the Anti-Saloon League, founded in 1893, decided to go all out and try and get some form of federal restriction 
um, drink. Uh, this all also fed into a growing tension between two great sectors in American society, a largely Protestant countryside and a largely Catholic and Jewish uh, urban working class, with the people in the cities who held the white-collar jobs usually being the offspring of the farmers. In other words, the middle-class managers and executives had grown up on farms which were straight with regard to drink. They'd got an interest in workers being sober and working hard. They had anti-drink prejudices. They now had an economic reason to dry people out. And so an alliance between the uh, Protestant middle class in the cities with the old countryside was enough to finally push through in 1920 the complete federal prohibition on the sale and transportation of all alcoholic beverages. It was the more evangelical and religiously motivated of Protestant Americans who welcomed prohibition, uh, women folk concerned at the unraveling of family life, people concerned with the identification of saloons with prostitutions and, and uh, a general generally a moral orientation. As a result, 80% of the anti-saloon leagues, uh, statewide officials, were Protestant clergymen. Some of them were, of course, the uh, Bible thumpers, like Billy Sunday. I don't give a hoot whether a man guzzles beer standing at the bar or whether sitting down at a table. Who sold to a preacher or a high school girl has the same effect as when it's sold to an automobile thief or a horse thief. Oh, America needed repentance. She didn't need rum. She needed righteousness. We don't need jags. We need Jesus. We don't need more grog. We need more of God. Uh, many of them, however, were more ordinary uh, and down-to-earth clergymen, Methodist and Baptist. However, of course, there were also the fringe Protestant organizations like the Ku Klux Klan who whipped up uh, prohibition sentiment really as a way of bashing the immigrant and the Catholic. For whiskey is sold in every town in the good old USA. Old policeman will arrest you, he'll lock you up in jail. He'll drink up all your liquor and turn you out on bail. We know very well that where there is a demand for a good and sir or, or service which cannot be met by normal channels, extraordinary and extra legal channels will come to the rescue to see that the good or service in question is provided. In broadest terms, this very simply is what happened in the case of prohibition. It is probably correct to say that overall, nationwide, there was less drinking between 1920 and 1933 than there was before, and it is probably true that prohibition was the reason. Okay, nevertheless, okay, nevertheless, the fact remains that even where attempts were made to enforce prohibition, anybody who wanted their beer, wine, or booze badly enough could get it, and here is where the gangsters came in and profited so handsomely from it. They were ready, willing, and able to provide a service for which the effective demand was there, hence their 
existence, hence their success. Since that fateful morning of January 16, 1920, when the consumption of alcoholic beverages had become illegal, a new kind of institution had sprung up in the land. Hello, suckers! The speakeasy became an American habit and a billion-dollar industry. Because it was illegal to drink in public or anywhere, the citizenry of all ages entrenched themselves almost nightly in dark, dingy cellars, where against a background of bad murals, pockmarked bouncers, and stale air, they forced the human body to swallow some of the most corrosive poison ever consumed by man or woman. Madam, I give you my word. That's genuine five-year scotch. Got it off the boat myself just this morning. Almost everybody drank the stuff. The classy joints ran theirs through the Coast Guard's meager defense lines. The dives got it from the alky cookers. The stuff simmered in grape pots in Grandpa's basement, in the boarded-up brewery down the street, and in 25,000 illegal stills. Best moonshine in Carolina. Made it myself. And a technique originated by the Jenna brothers, who controlled one of the great crime syndicates in Chicago. The crime bosses had local ordinary people uh, distill diabolical rot-gut whiskies from corn mash in their own apartments. They would give out the ingredients, the local people would make it, they would then collect it, pay them a small amount, they would then resell it to saloon outlets uh, and make very considerable profits. That was one method. Increasingly, as the uh, more legit saloons were closed down by federal agents, the criminals themselves began to open up a whole uh, whole series of saloons themselves known as speakeasies, which varied from the opulent to the hole in the corner. Thirdly, another way in which they made uh, vast amounts of money was by running liquor in by boats along the east and west coast down from Canada, uh, by boats in the south up from the Caribbean, but more usually by truck in across the vast border with Canada and the prairies and Ontario. Um, perhaps the greatest amounts of money, however, were made in selling liquor uh, on consignment to smaller criminals who then resold it to, resold it to speakeasy runners. It was the men who organized the trade who made the vast and largest amounts of money. useful to politicians in a number of ways. First, gangsters uh, and organized crime were a very, very lucrative source and a very, very dependable source of funds to camp, you know, for to finance elections with. Okay, in this sense, um, okay, uh, in, in this sense, it was a very real link up. The it was a two-way street also because if 
politicians needed the gangsters, gangsters needed the politicians as well, you see, to, uh, to, you know, to uh, cover uh, for them. The gangsters also had tie-ins with the police and small-scale politicians as well. Here, what you ended up with was a very, very complex kind of protection racket in which, uh, in which the police, seeing how well the gangsters were making out in their shakedown, uh, in, the, in their shakedowns of small businessmen, would decide to get in on the gravy train themselves on the uh, perfectly uh, reasonable grounds that if uh, gangsters could shake down uh, communities and give very little back in return, we the police can, uh, well, how should we say it, also do our form of shaking down, but actually give small businessmen something in return, namely make their neighborhoods safe for them. Once things had gotten this far, you see, the police, you could say, themselves now had a vested interest in gangsterism or the threat of gangsterism continuing to menace these communities. For if it didn't, people might start asking themselves, look, if there's no uh, threat, why do we have to pay off the uh, cops for? In this sense, you end up with a, well, symbiotic relationship between unions, small businesses, police, gangsters, all feeding off the fears and the ambitions and greed of one another. A really very tight, vicious circle. The tie-up was secret but very close at the police district and political ward level, not at the level of the mayor and the chief of police. As long as the average citizen wasn't harmed, there was only limited concern in the higher levels of government. The catalyst was the illicit liquor and beer. The drinking public felt they were committing no moral wrong, that prohibition was an unfair law. Politicians and police, some of them at least, were on the payroll of Capone and other bootleggers. In most police districts, the so-called captain's man made the collections or parceled them out to other policemen. Speakeys were not wide open in residential areas, nor were beer flats, but you could be directed to them. The area just north and south of downtown was where most of the nightclub activity was concentrated, although it is likely that the suburban areas, unincorporated, were even more wide open. The uh, local politicians, they always came in to keep in touch. And when they'd look along the bar, they'd see there weren't so many in it, and they'd call drink for the house, you see. But in the back room, there'd be some... Fellas who hadn't much money, they were playing cards. When you hit a kick on the bucket, that was the signal that there was a live wire in. <laughs> I got the surprise, the surprise of my life. I had to stop and stare. I saw a man dancing with his own wife. And you will never guess where Chicago, Chicago, that's all in town, it's all in town, Chicago, Chicago, I'll show you around. I love it, bet your bottom dollar you lose the blues in Chicago, Chicago, the town that Billy Sunday could not shut down. 
just want to stay, I just want to stay. They do things they don't do on Broadway. Say, they have the time, the time of their life. I saw a man who danced with his wife in Chicago. Chicago had some very special features. It had grown extremely fast in the late 19th century. It was over a million people uh, drawn from every ethnic background. It was touching two million. Um, the type who made Chicago were the children of immigrants. Over two-thirds of the population in the 1920s were the children of immigrants. Uh, these were kids who largely rejected their parents' values because they associated stable family values with uh, European peasant cultures, which were not a particular use in Chicago, yet on the other hand these kids had not been adequately civilized, I suppose one would say, by established American city forces such as would happen in smaller and more intimate cities in New England or in uh, Milwaukee or Minneapolis. So you had a vast floating population uh, on the make, wanting to make, wanting to make a lot of money, not wanting to work gratefully in the stockyards or the factories like their fathers from Lithuania or Poland. Uh, wanting a quick way to make money and um, not particularly obedient to the either the social norms of the American city or to the Catholic norms of the European peasant past. The vast majority of people were busy as they are today with their own lives, making a living, raising their children. The sorrows of World War I were of recent memory. Spots of recession and unemployment marred the generally good economic picture. An automobile was the goal of every family. Prosperity, it was predicted, would be for everyone. Not many foresaw, or at least wanted to see, the coming stock market crash of 1929 and the Great Depression which would follow. In this scene, except for consuming illegal liquor and beer in violation of the Prohibition Act or betting on violation of gambling laws, the vast majority of Chicagoans live lives untouched by Al Capone, gang wars, or the more lurid dens of vice. Friends and relatives might even be serving the bootleg goods in speakeasies or beer flats or taking bets, but otherwise they were good family men. Chicago under prohibition was rather like uh, feudalism or a whole series of criminal fiefs in different parts of the city. Most of these, uh, strange to say, were Irish. Spike O'Donnell in the north of the city, uh, Bill O'Donnell in the south of the city, Tommy Druggan in the west of the city, and above all, of course, uh, Deanie O'Banion and Bugsy Moran in the, the near west side. There were also Italian gangs, the gangs of the Genes, the gangs of uh, Colosimo and Torimo, which Al Capone was to inherit, and one or two outsider gangs like Saltus. Saltus was a pole operating on the south side. But basically the city at the beginning of the 20s was divided then into a whole series of, uh, one might call them crime parishes, I suppose. O'Banion the man was an interesting character. He was a very civilized looking individual. One could see um, quite sensible young ladies falling for such a man. He, had a pretty straight upbringing. Uh, he went to a quality uh, Catholic school and then he rebelled against it when he was a teenager. Um, not performing at school, he took a series of menial jobs, decided there was no future in that for someone of his brains. And he was a very intelligent character. He started delivering votes to local bosses and in turn they turned a blind eye to his first criminal operation, which was gambling and numbers rackets. From there he moved into um, one of the background men who provided pro uh, prostitution services in that sector of Chicago. He was a very florid individual. He had a very fine voice. People compared his voice to John McCormick's. He ran a florist's as a front business, 
He always wore fresh flowers in his buttonhole. He had those sort of um, faraway, romantic Irish blue eyes that uh, always sent Chicagoans raging. O'Banion tried to fend off Capone takeovers of areas in Chicago proximate to his own turf, above all the town of Cicero in Illinois. This set up a hereditary hatred between the two of them. Uh, O'Banion's men gunned for some of Capone's smaller fry, and Capone probably then ordered the execution of O'Banion. Uh, this happened, and Jaime Weiss took over leadership of the gang for a short period, and then he in turn was succeeded by Bugsy Moran. Imported from New York, supposedly by Johnny Torrio, the man he would succeed, Al Capone was a brutal killer in his gangster world, but he was said to have contributed generously to charities and to the poor. Stories developed of individual acts of mercy, paying the medical bills to have a child's sight restored, for instance. It is difficult to know how many of these tales were apocryphal. Capone was a generous tipper in restaurants and night spots, a rabid sports fan, especially big league baseball. A famous photograph shows him sitting in a box at a big league game with a lawyer friend who was later elected to Congress from Chicago. Capone was a prototype of gang leaders fawned upon by some athletes, entertainers, cafe rich, and some everyday citizens too, all over the United States. Usually, as long as gangsters kill only gangsters, the law-abiding citizen doesn't mind. He was complex in that he had an eye for systematic organization, and that was what was to set him off from both Torrio, from O'Banion, and from virtually all the other criminals of the age. Well, Capone early on recognized that to provide drink illegally to the hundreds of thousands of people who required it meant crime on an entirely different scale than providing, um, for example, prostitution to the relatively small numbers of people who uh, were debased enough to seek it. He recognized, therefore, that a vast market entailed a superior style of organization. Basically what Capone did was introduce business organization into the world of crime without making it any the less criminal, indeed perhaps making it all the more criminal in the process because he was determined to build up an empire and to build it up ruthlessly and efficiently uh, and to, as the phrase always had it, to stop at nothing, including the, the systematic murder of all his opponents. The rivalry between Capone and Moran, as with all gangs, was based generally on dispute over territories. Generally speaking, Capone controlled the west side, downtown areas, and immediately adjacent sections. Bugs Moran had the north side. The south side was a mix of a couple of groups, the best known being that of Spike O'Donnell. The bootlegging racket was grossing millions of dollars a year. There was some ethnicity alignment involved. 
just because of neighborhoods and because bootleggers growing up together. Thus, Capone's people were mainly Italian, whereas O'Donnell on the south side and Roger Tui in the northwest suburbs had a lot of Irish with them. Moran's outfit was a mixture of various nationalities, including German, Greek, Jewish. Moran was born of Polish-Irish parents. I was getting beer from an Irish-American fellow. There were six brothers of them who supplied speakeasies with beer. So this nice a bunch of characters came in. About six of them had a drink and asked me who was I getting my beer from. I told them. They said, from now on, you get it from us. So they went inside and they turned on the beer taps and they said, down the drain. And rolled in half a dozen bottles of beer. They said, from now on, you'll get it from us. So my usual supplier was around couple of nights after and I told him what had happened. So he was disturbed and he said, I'll see you about it. So anyhow, they settled the locality between them. They parceled it out and he went back to supplying me as usual, which was left as his territory. Territoriality was inevitable, where Capone was trying to reduce, not eliminate, but reduce his competitors into functionaries. When they wouldn't become functionaries of his emergent crime business empire, then he would move to warfare and elimination. There were those like Dini O'Banion who were determined to fight back, who preferred the old individualistic method of... of uh, the provision of crime, and they believed it was possible to outwit Capone at his own game, for example, by hijacking the trucks of liquor which were being smuggled down from Canada, or by uh, terrorizing the people manufacturing drink and stills for Capone into providing them. It was this sort of mutual trespass which uh, prompted Capone to his greatest levels of rage. There was the famous case in which three Sicilians, whom he believed double-crossed him, were brought to a banquet, which Capone hosted, and he was the genial godfather all through the banquet, and when they were sufficiently drunk, he had them tied up with wire and beat them to death with baseballs, Capone himself. Uh, so he really brooked no opposition. He was prepared to have clients and subordinates, but no outright opponents, least of all those who attempted to double-cross him. Al Capone moved against Bugs Moran to wipe out the competition. Moran's area was the north side. At 10 a.m. or a little later on the morning of February 14, 1929, members of the Moran gang gathered in the garage of the SMC Cartage Company at 2122 North Clark Street. They were there to receive an unusually big load of illegal beer from Detroit. It never arrived. Some say that this reported delivery was actually a ruse engineered by Capone. Anyway, Capone lookouts were on the second floor of a rooming house just across the street from the garage. A light snow was falling as the lookouts kept tally of the number of persons who entered the garage. Six arrived. Along came a seventh. Supposedly, 
his fat face and build, misled the Capone lookouts to believe that it was Moran. They relayed the signal that everything was set. In a garage, meanwhile, at 1723 North Wood Street was a black Cadillac modified to resemble an open police car. Into the front seat climbed two men dressed in police uniforms and carrying police-issued shotguns. Into the back seat climbed two men in street clothes carrying long cases. The Cadillac pulled up to the Moran garage. The four entered, ordered the seven inside to line up against the wall with their hands against the wall. The Moran people thought they were being harassed by police and supposedly said so. The Capone killer shot them all dead, then killed a German shepherd dog named Highball, tethered as a watchdog inside the garage. The killers departed as if the two in street clothes were in custody of the two wearing police uniforms and drove away. Reportedly, Moran had been walking toward the garage and saw what he believed to be police entering and thus went out of this area and escaped execution. One of those killed was an optometrist who just enjoyed the thrill of knowing gangsters. Moran checked into a hospital immediately after the massacre, out of fear. When police and reporters caught up with him, he's supposed to have said, only Capone kills like that. It was said that the two gangsters dressed as policemen had been imported from St. Louis, while the two in the back seat with the cased machine guns, which were used in the mass murder, were regulars in Capone's mob. Moran had taken over the leadership of the North Side after the gangland murder of Dean O'Banion in 1924 in his flower shop across the street from Holy Name Cathedral. The flower shop was O'Banion's cover and headquarters. Capone's headquarters were in the 50-room Metropole Hotel at 2300 South Michigan Avenue, just south of the downtown area. Capone also kept a headquarters in the suburb of Cicero, immediately west of Chicago. Reportedly, more than 200 unsolved gangland murders were committed in Chicago in the late 20s and early 30s, including the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. A young man named Johnny Pastor, on his first day on police, called in and said that there'd been six gangsters murdered in a garage at 2122 North Clark Street. The city editor of the city news bureau, a gentleman named Isaac Gershman, couldn't believe it, and he called to me and dictated the lead on that story, which was six men are reported to have been injured in a fight in a garage at 2122 North Clark Street. So in a minute or two, Pastor called back and got a hold of me, knowing I had sent this silly bulletin, and said, honest to God, it's not six, it's seven, and they were machine gunned down, and with that, I wrote another bulletin, went to Gersh, and said, I'm going. Could I take a cab? And he said, the Clark Street car runs in front of the Ashland block every three minutes. It was a trolley. <laughs> so I went there in a streetcar because he wouldn't allow me a taxi on my expense account. Oh. And I still got there, the first <laughs> one. I never expected to be talking about it 50 years later. Yeah. Police were there, of course. And I went right in, said City Press, and went in, went behind, and it was pretty much a bloody scene, blood all over the place. We found out from the neighbors that two cars drove up to this place. Policemen got out of the two cars and later developed that they were men in police uniforms uh -huh. from the Al Capone gang. The six men in the garage saw the police coming in, thought it was a raid, and paid uh, no attention to them particularly. They, they knew they were clean, there was no liquor in the place. And then they pulled out the guns, opened fire, and 
mowed him down, cutting the head off one fellow with the spray of bullets. It was a pretty remarkable scene, but to me, it was just a news story. There are not too many alive today who are old enough then to have any deep memories now. To most citizens of Chicago and the suburbs, the massacre and the gangster days are part of a past which has given the city a reputation it has never been able to live down. It is true that in the summer of 1929, we young Chicagoans glowed with importance at the greeting we'd received during vacations in Wisconsin or other adjoining states. Routinely, a new friend, upon learning you were from Chicago, would grasp an imaginary machine gun and say, rat ta 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 And then, of course, Chicago newspaper men and Hollywood movie writers echoed the sound on their typewriters until the name Chicago became synonymous with gangster crime at its worst. Most people today spend little time either thinking or talking about those days. The era was simply something that happened, was lived through, can't be denied. Oh, there may be an occasional vicarious twinge of shameful pleasure at having lived through those days or having relatives who did so, but most Chicago area people are content to leave any in-depth look back to others, even from points as distant as Dublin. Usually, journalists depict a story in which Capone was successful and Prohibition was a failure. After all, Franklin Roosevelt eliminated Prohibition on coming to power, and one of the reasons usually given is that organized crime, largely under the aegis of Al Capone, had made the law unworkable. Neither of these arguments, I think, can stand up. I think Capone was unsuccessful and Prohibition was successful. First, let's look at Capone. Capone was a successful murderer. He built up a nationwide syndicate of crime through a series of agreements culminating in an agreement at the Cleveland Statler in 1928. Ironically, Chicago was the very last place he brought under that agreement with the Valentine's Day Massacre in 1929. But by then, the Federal Bureau of Investigation was determined to destroy him. He was brought down for non-payment of income tax on all his profits over the previous 10 years. He was tried and found guilty in the early 1930s and sent to Atlanta Penitentiary. His reach was so great that he was able to subvert Atlanta Penitentiary and turn it virtually into a, uh, a sheik's palace with virtually everyone doing his bidding. This outraged the FBI, who then sent him to Alcatraz in San Francisco Harbor. The real Capone came out in Alcatraz in San Francisco Harbor, the man who was cowardly in defeat when he had no bully boys to call on, the man who was basically spineless. And he came out of Alcatraz eight years later, uh, a broken man, a man really without a mind, who was incapable of rebuilding his uh, criminal network, and he gradually subsided and died of neurosyphilis acquired somewhere along the li line of his life of vice with poetic irony. Prohibition itself was, in fact, successful. We now are inclined to the view that alcoholism isn't a hereditary disease, that it's a disposition acquired during disordered adolescence, usually because of a romanticization of drink and, a relation, and the way in which advertising and other things relate that to uh, some form of easy and romanticized sexual life. Prohibition basically put off limits that entire world to an entire generation of American teenagers, and that generation of Americans, to this day, now in their, uh, now going into their 80s, people in their late 60s and their 70s, have the lowest rates of drink consumption, the lowest rates of alcoholism of any white population in England, Ireland, or America. To that degree, Prohibition, I believe, was successful. Unsuccessful, perhaps, in the large cities, 
but over most of America, remarkably successful. We are bands of freemen. We are bands of freemen. We are bands of freemen, and we sound through the land. The teetotals are a-coming. The teetotals are a-coming. The teetotals are a-coming in that cold water pledge. We are bands of freemen, we are bands of freemen, we are bands of freemen, and we sound through the land. We'll drink no more brandy whiskey, we'll drink no more brandy whiskey, we'll drink no more brandy whiskey in that cold water pledge. We are bands of freemen, we are bands of freemen, we are bands of freemen, and we sound.